Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. This woman is a woman of revival, and I just want everyone to just stand to your feet and be able to partake in this grace that she has. Miss Jen Stuckman! Hello. This, this is my man voice, hello. <laughs> hello out there. <laughs> you guys are so awesome. I'm so honored and happy to be a part of this family. You guys are just so beautiful, so beautiful. So why don't we pray? Yeah, it's always a good thing to do. <laughs> Jesus. Hello there. We're so happy about you. We're we're so happy about your happiness over Bethel Atlanta. We're so happy about your happiness over our city. That that you actually smile over Atlanta. That you smile over the high places and you smile down into the low places. That when you are searching this earth to and fro, you are smiling over your people. That you're not worried, you're not concerned, that you're absolutely confident that you got the job done. And tonight, we just want to take time to smile about what you're smiling about. That hope is on the rise that revival is on the rise, that the glory of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea is on the rise. And we've showed up tonight to get happy about what you're happy about. We've showed up tonight to live from a different realm. We've showed up tonight to get our news from a different realm. We've showed up tonight to get our forecasts of what's coming down the pipe from a different realm and we're showing up to smile over our future just like just like the bride in Proverbs 31 she smiles at the days ahead so we we've got our feet planted in reality and we are looking forward full of hope full of courage because Jesus is sufficient for everything we need in this hour So we're happy tonight. We've gathered as a happy people. We're happy about this church. We're happy about the build program that's popping up. We're happy about our city. We're happy about our relationships. We're happy about what you're doing in America and in the nations of the world. And we've come to agree with heaven tonight. We've come to set our gaze higher than what this world can offer. And we've, we've come to, to, to have our paradigms wrecked by the thoughts of Jesus. <laughs> we just smile about the fact that you're coming around the corner with more goodness than we could dream up on our best day. That you are coming around the corner 
with more solutions than we could have ever strategized around the most brilliant table. So we have showed up to receive our King. We showed up to receive our King with tidings of joy. We're so happy about your sufficiency, Jesus. We love you tonight. We love you. There's nothing more that needs to be won. And we've come to celebrate that tonight. Why don't we just sing out in tongues for a second? Let's get a little wild. She got up a shake at a bass show. She got up a shake at a bass show. She got up a shake at a bass show. We see you coming. She got up a shake at a bass show. You're not worried. She got up a shake at a bass show. The brightness of your rising. She got up a shake at a bass show. We're alive for your glory. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Nothing's impossible. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Here comes red carpet. Shake it a be shake it a be show. The king is coming. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Every nation, every tribe. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Shake it a be shake it a be show. You're coming tonight. Oh, we want you to know our eyes are set on you. You're the prize of our life. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Paradigms are falling. Shake it a be shake it a be show. You're making old things new. Hallelujah in the morning. Hallelujah through the night. Jesus is coming. He's making every wrong thing right. Emmanuel is here. Emmanuel is here. We honor your presence. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Shake it a be shake it a be show. Ten thousand lifetimes, and still we would sing. Shake it a be shake it a be show. It's all for you. It's all for you. Flip us inside out. Turn us upside down. Let every part of our life be part of your crown. Shake it, baby. Shake it, baby. Show. Shake it, baby. Shake it, baby. 
shakaraba shikere besho over and over over and over jesus is calling arise and shine tonight your bridegroom is here shikere shakere besho We just love you. We love you 10,000 years. And we'll still be singing the same song. Oh, how we love you. Turn our world inside out. Flip us upside down. Over and over. Refine us until all that remains is this love song between you and I. We've showed up tonight not just to do church. We're not that crowd. We're the people who show up to be ruined by you, to get messy in your presence, to, to not wait for an encounter, but to live as a habitation of the lover of our soul. We can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves, Jesus, but to throw it all on the line for you. We forgot what a reputation is. It got burned up in the fire so long ago. We're ruined for the authentic Jesus. We're ruined for the Holy Spirit. We're ruined for the Father. We've showed up for you. We woke up this morning because we can't get enough of the real gospel of the real Jesus so we we're saying as a family whatever the cost whatever the price that we would carry the renown of who you are in this earth morning by morning evening by evening afternoon by afternoon here we are Jesus here we are we just we just we're, we're not hungry because we're starving. We're hungry because we're ruined for anything but you. We love you tonight, Jesus. We love you. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. I just got a little bit intoxicated during worship, so... <laughs> this will be very fun. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your thought life, which is just so exciting. <laughs> you know, your thought life is, is your worship. And what, what we do with our thought life is a super big deal and it, it really determines the quality of our life. And what, you know, one tiny thought blown up big changes everything. And a huge part of worship is choosing which thoughts we're gonna blow up big. Which thoughts are we gonna magnify? And, you know, 
we all, every single person on this planet has a belief system that is perpetuating our thoughts. And, you know, before the foundation of the world, that belief system came from our Father. It came from the fullness of our Creator. Before the stars took shape, before the seas burst into existence, it says right out the gate, in the beginning, the earth was formless, dark, and void. But guess who was there? <laughs> God was there. And sometimes we picture the dark, empty, waste, void as a lonely place. But there was no loneliness before the foundation of the world. The fullness of the nature of God was before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. That means righteousness was there. Peace was there. The God of all hope there is no hope without him. And the fullness of ridiculous hope was there before the foundation of the world. You did not burst into existence because there was a need for you. <laughs> you burst into existence because fullness of love desired you. <laughs> You burst into existence because the fullness of hope couldn't stand the thought any longer of life without the dream of you. You didn't come out of a deficit or a need for significance. You came out of the fullness of the Trinity. There was perfect, ridiculous love. You know, the last prayer Jesus prayed, he said, Father, I desire that they be with me, that they would know the love we shared before the foundation of the world. There was perfect, intoxicated love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit when it was dark, formless, and void. None of the outside environment dictated the nature of God. Everything we see exploded into existence out of fullness. And, you know, we, we see right out the gate that a violation of love came in, that sin came in, and it whittled its way into our belief system. And we were never wired to know a violation of love. We were never wired to know deficit. We were never wired to know trauma. We were never wired to know fear. We were wired to live inside the perfect love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were wired to live inside abundant life. And when sin came in, it began to penetrate our belief system, how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see the world. And you know, you were born into generations of thought patterns. The way that you see the world is inherited. And you know, how many of you, it took a lot of years before you bumped into a different reality than what you inherited? Oh my gosh, you mean you're not mad? 
I, I, I lived a lot of years thinking he was mad or that I could only talk to him on Sunday. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is revolutionary. And, you know, the, the, the way that we see our belief system is, is massive to our life of worship. And, you know, when, when the people of God were sent into the promised land, Everybody but Joshua and Caleb came back magnifying the giants, right? They were huge. They were massive. They were all they could see. And Joshua and Caleb magnified the land and the promise of their God. You know, the, the giants were like grasshoppers. But in the perspective of everybody else that went into the same land, they became like grasshoppers. And the promise of their God was as small as a grasshopper. And, you know, in your hand, spiritually, is a magnifying glass. And what you see is because of the way that you're positioning your magnifying glass. And, you know, we could walk into the same land and be overwhelmed by the size of the grapes and be overwhelmed by the milk and the honey, overwhelmed by the reality that the God who created the world sent us into this land, that he spoke human beings into existence. And, and we're afraid he can't take care of a giant. He, he actually created the sea. And Joshua and Caleb were magnifying that God and saying, we've got this. We've got this. And, you know, our nourishment, you know, is depending on our ability to see the way that Jesus sees. Our nourishment, you know, the, the manna dried up when it was time to take the land. And it, it was intended that the territory that they were to possess was to be their nourishment. No longer would, would God be waking them up every morning with what they needed on the ground. Their hunger for what was to come was supposed to propel them forward into courage to take the land. An appetite for the produce in the land. An appetite for fruit they had never tasted before. An appetite for the milk and the honey was to propel them forward. And, and we have been given the kingdom of heaven within us without measure. And, you know, last, last weekend, two people randomly told me that every seven years, our taste buds change. And after the second time, I just felt this thing well up in my heart that we are in a season of our taste buds changing. And, and it, it it is necessary that we magnify the fruit in the land he's calling us to take. It's necessary that we magnify the goodness in the land we're supposed to take. It's necessary that we magnify the God who is calling us there so that we, we can't help but move forward. We can't help but go where he's asking us to go. And, you know, all through the Old Testament, we see how this internal world of what are we magnifying with our thought life shows up in our heroes all throughout the Old Testament. And, and um, this, 
our whole passion to reign in life. Magnifying the right thoughts is a super big part of that. And, you know, one of my favorite royal heroes in the Old Testament is Jonathan. And he was the son of King Saul. And he somehow, without the example of his father, got a royal perspective right. And, you know, we are kings and priests positioned before the king of all kings. And us getting this royal thing right is a huge deal to our legacy. And, you know, his example in King Saul was um, pretty traumatic. You know, the things that would have showed up in a sozo. <laughs> my, my father is trying to kill my best friend. And... I keep having to save him, <laughs> you know? Like, it's like deep level belief systems popping out from his father's lineage, you know? And Saul's, Saul's crown and robe and ring and authority was defining who he was. So much so that he constantly felt threatened at the idea of, of his crown being taken away. And somehow, that skipped Jonathan, and Jonathan was next in line to receive the crown, and he, he was ripping off the robe on his own back, his belt, his armor, and laying it down willfully and joyfully because of love to his friend David, and there was a royalty somewhere in the internal mindset of Jonathan that was perpetuating goodness into the next generation. And it's, it's um, beautiful to see that he tapped into new, co new covenant thinking before his time. It says that he loved Jonathan as his own soul. And that was his best friend. And we would step in generations later to a mandate by Jesus to love even our neighbor as our own soul, a life laid down. And, you know, when we look further in the story after Jonathan, the, the night that Jonathan and Saul were killed in a war, Second Samuel 4 talks about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And he, during that traumatic night, his nurse fell. He was five years old, and he was crippled from then on, from the time he was five. And he grew up fatherless and crippled. And, you know, years later, David is sitting as king. All the prophecies, everything that Jonathan paid a price for was fulfilled. And he's just sitting in the glory of all that, and he's remembering his friend. You guys remember this? And he's like, is there anyone in the house of Saul still alive? And he wanted to honor his friend. And he brings Mephibosheth in. And he somehow missed that he was the son of a, of a prince. That he was the son of an incredibly royal, beautiful hero of our faith. And he falls at David's feet. And what a moment for David. If, if you think about, Mephibosheth was probably resembling 
his, his dear friend in some way, his smile, his mannerism. And here is the son of Jonathan at the feet of David. And the Bible says that, you know, he, he thought of himself as a dead dog. This was, this was the thought life of the son of Jonathan, a hero of the prince. He, he said to David, what do you want to do with a dead dog like me? Somehow his trauma, his injustice, his, his physical ailment, got into his belief system until he considered himself a dead dog. And, you know, David responds with, I'm going to give you back all the land that was your grandfather's. I'm going to give you authority and influence. You're going to be a prince in this land again. And I'm going to give you access every single meal. You're going to come to my table and eat. And he treats him like a stun. He, he restores his dignity. And I just wonder how many times did it take Mephibosheth to sit at the table of King David before he figured out, I'm not a dead dog. How many times could he sit in the presence of a king who was honoring him as his own son before it started to penetrate his belief system? Hey, somehow I'm not defined by my trauma. Somehow I'm not defined by what I can't do. Somehow I'm not defined by the fact that I'm lame and can't walk. Somehow I don't feel fatherless any longer. I wonder if it was the fifth time, the tenth time, the hundredth time. But guess what? King David had an internal belief system of honor that said, not on my watch will the son of my best friend call himself a dead dog. We're going to find out how many times it takes at my table. And, you know, another queen hero who somehow had an internal belief system that she shouldn't have had was Queen Esther. And, you know, 500 years after King David and King Saul was Mordecai. And Mordecai actually came in the lineage of King Saul. And Mordecai adopted Queen Esther. <laughs> Esther, her, her, she was an orphan. Her parents died. You know, they, they, they were living as captives in the land. They were the, the Jews were the least of the least and favor kept opening doors for Queen Esther. And somewhere along the line, she stopped thinking like an orphan. Somewhere along the line, she no longer saw the, saw the world through her injustice. She somehow no longer saw the world through her trauma. Because when, when the crown was set at her feet, she filled up her space. She put it on her head. She wore the robe. And, you know, we know the story when Mordecai is devastated because the news goes out in the land that Haman sends out a decree that on this specific day, every single Jew will be annihilated. It specifically says every woman, every man, every mother, every father, every child. Like, if we could just imagine the gravity of that culturally, that you just found out your entire 
people group was going to be annihilated because of the hatred of Haman. And, you know, Queen Esther was isolated inside the comfort of the palace. And she heard that Mordecai was walking the streets in his grieving clothes. And so she tried to send clothes to, to her uncle and say, stop, stop grieving. And, you know, it's such a beautiful moment in the story because Mordecai responds with, I will not stop grieving. You're not aware of what's going on. You're not aware of what's happening out here. It's so good. We should just look at it for a second. You want to? It's in Esther 4. And it says, when Esther's young women, verse 4, and her eunuchs came and told her about what was going on in the city, the, the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. And, you know, he goes on, he goes on to say, Mordecai replies to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And, you know, this is such a beautiful picture of Mordecai's belief system that was embedded with real hope. Because he refused to step out of the reality of what was happening in his city to his people. He said, I I won't take off the grave clothes. Because I see the pain of my people. And he, he had a hold on the reality of what was happening. They were all on the brink of being murdered. But he was able to say, Esther, if you don't fill up your space for the reason of your influence, it will arise from another source. He knew the nature of his God. My God will deliver. He's on the brink of delivering, but you got to get your head in the game, Esther. You didn't, you, this is not about just redemption for you. That crown isn't just a beautiful story to change your generational line. Your redemption is about your whole people group. And, you know, he called her higher. And hope, real hope, allows the deficits in our story, in our nation, in our generational lines to be felt. When hope is writing the story, We feel the deficit of what is wrong, but we're able to keep a gaze on my God will deliver. And you know, it's, it, it was a dream of the reality of God that was the rudder in Mordecai's ship. <laughs> and you know, hope, when hope is writing our story, it tells the whole story. <laughs> It tells the whole darkness of the day. It it fills up every lacking space with the real story. And, you know, fantasy, fantasy is writing a story that's not your own. 
Fantasy is using the comfort of your promotion to isolate yourself from reality. Fantasy is hiding behind somebody else's story and not valuing your own. It's a dream that doesn't pay a price. Hope has a dream that pays a price. And it gets you before the king and says, if I perish, I perish. I will pay a price for what I believe to be true. And we are in an hour of history where hope is on the rise, where we see the deficits and pain in our own story, in our nation's story, in the story of history. And we're filling up the space with an indestructible confidence in the nature of our God and saying, I will pay a price for what I see in the heart of the deliverer. And, you know, Esther was able to count the cost and and had an internal belief system that propelled her forward. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because the enemy only comes in our mind to mock what terrifies him. And, you know... In, in Matthew 27, you know, Jesus, Jesus steps on the scene and he is modeling for the world a belief system that's never been tainted. He's, he's walking the streets with the fullness of the Father. And, you know, he... he is walking in the fullness of a pure love that motivated everything he did, that he didn't have a need to take from people to make himself feel better. He didn't have a need that he was trying to fulfill as he walked the earth. He was literally modeling, living from the fullness of heaven to earth. And, you know, in when he is on the brink of being crucified, everyone closest to him scatters, and, and he knows it's going to happen. He says, you know, the time has come where you're, you're all about to leave me alone. And he says, but I am not alone because the Father is with me. And he was able to navigate real life pain, real life trauma from a reality of his father that did not move him. He was still able to live out of a belief system that was pure and undefiled no matter what people did to him, even the people that had the closest access to his heart because he was living from the reality of heaven. And, you know, before he was crucified, in, in Matthew 27, he was mocked. And I've just been meditating on, on this passage and just beholding a Jesus who finished, who finished the trauma in our belief system, who finished the injustice of violation after violation of love, who made a way that what if we could be born again 
what if we could be born again into a pure bloodline that never knew one day of trauma, that never knew one violation of love, that never knew one injustice, but only knew the fullness of love, the fullness of acceptance. And this is the gospel, that we would be born again and begin to see from a clear lens, begin to have a thought life that is from heaven to earth, that no longer would we need a crown to define us. No longer would we need a robe or a job or a title or a certain amount of money, but that we would be like the wind, that we couldn't be bottled up and defined by culture, that we couldn't be defined by what the world puts on us, but that we would be free to live without shape except before our Father. And, you know, Jesus had just been flogged, and they, they wrapped metal and bone to the end of a whip, and they just, they just beat him. And, you know, many prisoners that were on the brink of being crucified would not make it through the flogging. It was so brutal that literally the bone and the metal was intended to rip out organs and rip out tissue that he, he was literally losing so much blood. And I mean, on the brink of death already after such an excruciating beating. And before he was taken to the cross, soldiers gathered around him to mock him. And it says in Matthew that it was an entire battalion. And some commentaries say that was like 150 to 200 soldiers. And some say it was 600 soldiers. So it was hundreds of soldiers gathering around Jesus who, who could probably barely hold himself up. And they were known culturally for their cruelty. And they would mock prisoners before crucifying them. And so they wrapped, they, it, it says they, they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And, you know, they were literally mocking the real identity of Jesus. That Jesus knew that every tongue would confess, that every knee would bow and declare that he is Lord, that he is the king of all kings, that that elders for the rest of time would throw their crowns at his feet and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he absorbed their mockery. He was silent. He said nothing. And the enemy was mocking who he really, truly was. And, you know, 
the same is true today. The enemy is not concerned about hating you. He's concerned about hating the Christ in you. And when we feel mocked, it's because he's terrified of us figuring out who we really are. That there is truly a crown on your head. That there is truly a robe on your back. That you truly have authority and a scepter of influence. And when you hear the enemy knocking at your door, mocking and saying you're not who you really think you are. It's a defeated enemy terrified that you would figure out the Christ in you is unrestrained and he's no longer on a cross with a fake crown and a fake robe. John saw him in Revelation and and we're going to finish with this because as he is now, so are we in this world and he's not being mocked any longer. Every trick the enemy tried to play is under his feet and he is the winner in your entire storyline. And you know, John saw him and said, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. (laughs) This is our Jesus. And this is who is living and breathing that you have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer your old belief system. It's no longer your old trauma. It's no longer the pain of sin and death and hell. It died on the cross. It was mocked to the ground and Jesus absorbed it. And now this Jesus who stands victorious with fire coming out of his eyes and a sword shooting through his mouth with hair that's white as snow, full of glory and authority with every key we need to overcome in his hand 
Lucy with you. <laughs> no, we were. <laughs> when we feel the enemy spitting on us, <laughs> we will get excited because we're moving in the right direction. Because Jesus said, remember, if he hates you, it's only because he hated me. And our war is not with flesh and blood. It's with an enemy that's terrified that we would wake up and realize who it is that's alive on our insides. And so, Jesus, we just celebrate tonight your sufficiency. We celebrate that we have a pure crown on our head, that we have a righteous robe that Jesus purchased and bought with his own blood. And we say we will not be moved to perform or, or to prove who we are or whose we belong to. We've got work to do. And, we, and, and the entire work of the gospel is believing in the sufficiency of Jesus. So tonight, Jesus, we just say we believe in the sufficiency of you. <laughs> and a happy church says, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.